here's the narrative that's more helpful for a believer is are we really honoring God with the narrative that we're creating? And, and if we aren't, what narrative are we going to create and live by? Yeah. And so that's where I yeah, think, man. that's where I think Jerry's book is a must read. I think we have to go yep, back yep. to God's narrative and ask him like, Hey, what honors you? And that is walking inside the lines that's living under the umbrella of his protection. And so if, and when it hits the fan and, and God says, okay, I'm going to intervene and take all these things to the ground. The people that are going to still be standing are the people that he's holding up the load bearing structures, right? Amen. Amen. And, and it won't, and, and it'll be God who's, who's yeah. doing, I love how you said that. Like, and, and he will, yeah, he will protect and provide for and allow for us to be like we say over and over and over again, that redemptive influence through, through, uh, through commerce. Yeah. Amen. Welcome friends. You are listening to blue collar money theories of middle-class investing with your hosts, PW Gopal and Mike Hatch. Welcome back to Blue Collar Money, um, theories of middle-class investing, where our goal is to help everyday folks get financially unstuck. And I am here with P.W. Gopal. My name is Mike Hatch. We are your hosts today. And today, P.W., we are unpacking our last interview that we did with, uh, with Jerry Boyer, who's a theologian, economist, writer, uh, just a, and a great guy, unbelievably brilliant, right? Yeah, absolutely. It was, um, we have a lot to talk about because it was, uh, it was a brilliant hour or hour and a half that we got to spend with him. I mean, I couldn't stop taking notes. Yeah, I, I agree. I was the same way. And we were specifically, we were talking to him about his brand new book, the maker versus the takers, what Jesus really said about social justice and economics and his perspective and what he learned through some of the research that he did on, uh, on Jesus and how Jesus taught based differently based on where he was geographically is fascinating. But real quick, before we dive into that though, um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for continuing to listen and, uh, and talking to us about the things you're learning and giving us feedback Please uh, share this podcast with friends and family, and uh, and if you would do us a favor, give us a five star rating. That would be fantastic. Just helps to get the word out. Helps with all those algorithms and things that kind of promote the show. And uh, and then lastly, I would just say, just as a reminder, I think we've said this a couple of times before, but I want to say it more often. This we are not professional financial advisors. <laughs> We are absolutely laymen um, who've just put a ton of work and have been very diligent in learning and are trying to learn out loud when it comes to investing. And, uh, and you know, PW says all the time, we're about being blue collar and, uh, and we're practitioners too. 
right? So we're, we're in the process ourselves of figuring this out. So uh, yeah, so do not take our advice. You need to go take what we say, learn for yourself, educate yourself. That's ultimately our hope is that this, this, uh, this show would motivate you to do that. And then you want to talk to someone who is a financial uh, planning, managing expert to take into consideration all of your own personal issues and, and, uh, and things going on in your life that, that, uh, yeah, that are specific to you and then make a plan based on that, not based on the generalities we're talking about here. Anything you'd add to that, PW? Well, that's our CYA clause. <laughs> that's uh, right. Because we are not fiduciaries. Now, having said that, we 100% believe that you are the quarterback of your financial future, that we are the quarterback of ours, that we are called to be stewards of our own. And so, um, yeah, I think Mike is absolutely right. Uh, while you shouldn't do exactly what we're doing, um, you know, because we're all unique individuals, you should be studying and learning. Um, and, you know, because our, our eventual, our goal is really that at some point through relationship, you could teach us. Yeah. Right. You're going to falter. I'm going to falter. Our margins going to be low at some point, And we're going to need good people around us who are blue collar, meaning that put their hands in the game, get their hands and feet dirty, are running their own show, are quarterbacking their own future uh, financially and can say, hey, here's what worked for me. Uh, and we're trying to do that for you now because we have the margin to do it. Um, but like we've already shared in previous episodes, there's no telling what's going to happen to us. Right. And that's right. In tw 2021 is, is a different ball game. Nobody <laughs> no knows kidding. what's going to happen. No kidding, man. We are in an absolutely crazy time in history. And, uh, it's, yeah, it's, I guess some people might say it's a little scary, but, uh, but there's also great opportunity in this and, uh, and maybe some awakening for some of us. I know PW and I have experienced that ourselves. Mm. So that being said, uh, let's go ahead and, and jump in now to our, our conversation, PW. So yeah. again, we interviewed in the previous episode. If you haven't listened, you can take a listen to, to our interview with Jerry Boyer and, uh, Again, the book is The Maker Versus the Takers, what Jesus really said about social justice and economics. And really, he's, let me just kind of set a framework really briefly. His main kind of point is that, uh, is that Jesus uh, grew up and came from the region of Galilee in Israel, which is kind of the northern region. If you've heard of uh, Galilee is, is the, the region where the, the um, uh, Gosh, the Sea of Galilee is, of course, where Jesus calmed the storm. Uh, and there are other, other incredible miracles that happened along the lake there. He spent a lot of his ministry time up in Galilee. Uh, obviously, Nazareth, where he grew up, was is in Galilee. And it is a region made up of, or at the time of Jesus, was a region made up of primarily enterprising um, people and businesses, the fishing industry was big, of course. You hear about that in the Gospels. The um, farming was a big deal, and uh, and so was building. As uh, as Jerry Boyer found out that there was a a building boom 
in uh, in Cipherus or Cephyrus, I think is how you pronounce it, one of the neighboring towns there that mo most definitely Jesus and his and his uh, father Joseph would have participated in that. And so it was, it was a very enterprising area where people were exactly what you just said, PW, blue collar uh, business owners who were, you know, resident farmers, fishers. I mean, they're doing, they're, they're getting their hands dirty, getting after it. Hmm. Where in Judea, which is where Jerusalem is in Israel, was much more aristocratic. And you see a lot of um, politically connected elites who were in charge and who were who owned land that provided their income for them, but yet they were absentee farmers. They were the ones who would uh, um, had people working for them on the for, uh, on the farms. So they would take advantage of those people often who were working for them. You would see that. Uh, to empower and enrich themselves, basically. And so Jesus' harshest teaching was about money, was directed toward those people, the ones who were uh, politically, socioeconomically connected uh, elite, basically. And uh, so, yeah, that's where, that's kind of where the idea where his book came from. And that, that ended up putting Jesus at what he says at loggerheads or at, uh, uh, conflict between his teaching and what the religious leaders of the day who are made up of that elite would have uh, would have taught it put put them at loggerheads and it ultimately um, played a significant role in Jesus being crucified eventually and being killed so um, yeah just kind of set up the that's kind of a brief overview of the main point of the book um, yeah, PW. Is there anywhere you'd want to start? As uh, I know, you're looking over your notes. Yeah, the the thing that struck me, and it was funny because it was gold from the beginning. <laughs> I mean, as soon as as soon as he started to share, you know, his heart and his passion for kind of unpacking commerce and 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 really unpacking what Scripture says about these things. You know, he says that he said that his message is not for everyone. But the people that he has a heart for are what he calls the load-bearing structures in the world. And he describes it as people yeah. who feel the pain or the effect of bad decisions in commerce. And yep. I mean, and that means a lot to me. Like when that is somebody who is producing value for a certain group of people to make their life not more tolerable, but, uh, you know, but, but better. That somebody would spend the time to curate this kind of information and unpack scripture um, for a blue collar venue of people that, I mean, that, that resonates with my heart. It, it really sparked me. And I love, I just love the, the visual of, of him, you know, calling these people, the load bearing structures um, in their world. And, and he described them as people that have other folks that depend on them. Right. Yeah, so it's, yeah. it's their families, but it, he said their second families being there, um, the people that they employ. And if you look at how America was built, it wasn't built on, um, it may have been scaled on speculation, hmm. but it was built on production. Yep, definitely. You know, and so as in my personal study, whenever I, you know, look at a chart, 
and I'm watching, you know, numbers go up and come down and I'm watching the lines go up and, you know, the algorithms kind of turn into, you know, pictures. What I see is, you know, is that whenever a bubble bursts and then it can be a, a smaller, a larger scale bubble, macro bubbles or smaller ones on day, on a daily basis, we're always coming back to this area of market equity. And usually that is tied in and, and it just relates to the level of production of this country. You know, yeah. people will drive the price up, they will sell off and it will come down to the place where buyers and sellers want to be anyway, where the market wants to be. Like people personify the market and say, the market wants to be here. And that's what they're talking about is it, you know, regardless of what speculators jump in and start and, and start to buy and sell these different items and drive prices up and down, it always comes back down on the load bearing structures, which are the people that are producing. Hmm. That's amazing. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of, uh, you know, like a building that's been burned down or, or something like the, I even, well, yeah, one of the, this is kind of morbid, but the, the, the twin towers in New York, you know, and often you will see, oh, and you, you can go, you can go visit Rome right now or Greece and these other places and, and the load bearing structures, those pillars are often still standing when the rest of the building is not. That, that's what I think about. I think about the whole thing crashing down yeah, and yet those pillars are still standing and, and in some cases can still be built back up. On yeah, you can still, yeah. You can absolutely still use them. That's kind of the fun visual is that no matter what happens in the market, the, the folks that are still producing, um, the majority of them will, will continue to produce. Hmm. And everybody else is going to be looking at their 401ks and wondering where the numbers went. Wow. Right. That's a, yeah. Oh my gosh. That's a beautiful picture. So when he, when he said that just in the first few minutes of us being with him, I mean, I just, I stumbled through the rest of the interview because I just couldn't stop thinking <laughs> about, you know, where his heart was and the value that he was bringing to, you know, the, honestly, the folks that really keep this country going. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So it was, it was such a cool visual. Um, and I, I don't have the biblical background to understand that a Galilean is an, is an enterprising person or an entrepreneur. Um, but when he used the, the phrase, like they have skin in the game, that's the people that I'm like, I, I resonate with that. Yep. Yeah. And so just, so you say Galilean, I think he, he, um, through writing this book and doing the research, I think he's got his, uh, his own meaning behind what that that term is. So Galilean, when he says that, he's talking about, yeah, someone who has skin in the game, uh, the opposite of an absentee farmer, someone who's a resident farmer who lives on the farm, works it themselves. Hmm. And, uh, and there are two, we were talking about this before the podcast, there are two people in scripture that come into my mind almost immediately when I think about the resident farmer, and that is the uh, Gideon, who God chose to lead his people in, 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 into battle, and he was a resident farmer. I mean, in fact, God called him, as it says, as he was, he was tilling the ground, <laughs> he was actually mm -hmm. doing it. And actually, okay, and then um, Boaz, I've mentioned him in previous podcasts from the book of Ruth, very much a resident farmer, owned his land, 
Um, and just, it's, it's a beautiful thing to see his interaction with those he employs and just how God used him as a pillar, not just a pillar in the community like, like that, but also God used Boaz in a, in a way to perpetuate his redemptive plan through, through Ruth and, uh, and maintaining that line of David. And I know this is getting theological, but it's significant in a scriptural way because mm. God promised that the Messiah would be from the family line of David and, and Boaz helped to ensure through what his faith actions, his, or his actions rooted in faith, God used him to make sure that that did happen. The other person I, I think of that was kind of a resident farmer, and this is an interesting study on contrast between who he was when he first was called by God and who he became later. But, uh, but, uh, Saul, King Saul in the Old Testament, it, when you read about him, when he, when God chose him to be the king of Israel, the first king of Israel before David took over from him, it mentions the fact that Saul, even after being an anointed king, would still go into the fields and work until his really? fields. Yeah. Yeah. No way. At the beginning. Right. Okay. But then if, of course, we know Saul changed big time. <laughs> yeah. He became extremely full of himself and went from being that resident farmer, the Galilean, in a sense, in that using that term, to more the aristocratic kind of, a, you know, like king anyway. Yeah. So, yeah, sorry, that was a long tangent, but just some some thoughts of, of what being a Galilean yeah. means. That's good homework for me. I don't, um, like I said, it's encouraging for me to hear people unpack scripture. Um, number one, it's, it's, it's a good admonition for me to know that if I'm following, and again, this is, this is kind of where I land. Not everything's going to be perfect when I follow Jesus, but he has provided a story and a narrative for me to follow as a steward. And I can live kind of inside the lines or go outside of the lines. Um, and I think collectively as a herd, as a group of people, we, we, have, we kind of check our brains and lose our brain cells and, and act as a group. And we start to follow narratives that aren't, they're not helpful. And they, they do lead yeah. us into bubbles. Um, so I like it. I like it when somebody can provide um, insight into um, into the good narratives. Yeah. Right. Whether it be Boaz. Yeah. King Saul. Um, you know Jerry's idea Maybe. of Galileans. Yeah. So real quick, PW, if you don't mind, now might be a good time if 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 you don't mind sharing because you are in the process of trying to be the, the Galilean right now as, as you're trying to cultivate and, and begin a business. Um, as we said, we're practitioners. You're practicing <laughs> right now. Um, do you mind giving us a quick update on what's going on with uh, with your mechanics business and how you're trying to kind of really live out that, that narrative? Yeah. Um, I, we had talked about this a little bit in one of the big chicken episodes. Um, you know, I think there, there are people that are, I mean, way smarter than me that might lead themselves into these areas. We are doing it as a survival guide. I mean, literally being, you know, led by the Holy spirit through this process of like reinventing 
unintentionally because I don't, I didn't want to give up music. Um, but it was just something that COVID has, has, uh, kind of taken away. And then my daughter's sickness, you know, just, I need to be at home. We happen to have a small property that has, um, a couple rentals and a shop. And we bought it because of the shop, because I, I like building stuff and wrenching on stuff. Um, and, and now because of the situation we're in, we are really grateful for this shop. It's about 650 square feet. And so it's not terribly big, but it's enough where I can change it over from woodwork, which is what I've been doing to put both these rentals back in, in, you know, together. Um, and we're turning it into an auto bay and it's, it's not done yet. I had to hire an engineer to come out and, and write plans up for me to, to boost the rafters up so I can get a lift, a 10 foot lift in. Mm. Um, so there's, we're still undergoing that. I've got to do major electrical work so I can uh, move in a welder and, and different types of things. Um, the forming the LLC wasn't bad. Um, figuring out the taxes really wasn't bad. It's just all kind of like stuff that I haven't done in a while, but you know, I just called up the lawyer and we worked it out. Yeah. I think in, in, um, we've been open a month and have generated $2,700 maybe. Hmm. Um, in profit. Yeah. Uh, no, just revenue. Okay. It's not going to be profit. Well, cause I also bought like three grand in tools. Okay. Um, yep. so it's, it's definitely not hurting me. I've almost paid myself back for all the tools, but now there's a, there's a few tools that I don't have, but I won't buy them because I won't take on that kind of work. Like hmm. I bought, I bought the $1,500 scanner. I, instead of the $10,000 scanner. Um, mm -hmm. there's certain parts of, of mechanics work that I'm not going to get into. Um, but it has given us a, a, you know, a way for me to go from zero income, um, you know, at least, uh, to something 2000, 3000, 4000 a month. Mm -hmm. And, and I walk out my door, I walk about 20 feet and I'm in the shop and, <laughs> and yeah. Caroline can come out. I mean, it's ticking all these different values. Like Caroline loves being in the shop with me. And she, wow. I gave her a couple blocks of wood and a bunch of nails and a baby hammer. And she just sits there and pounds nails into wood. And she says she's working. And That's so great. she's, it's, it's all, it's, I love it. You know, I, she doesn't like the loud noises. She doesn't like the air compressor and sure. different tools. And so she has her own little headphones that she puts on and she's in her own world. And, and I love, I, I've, I've been wrenching on cars for a long time, but um, to be in my own shop, listening to Chris Stapleton and John Moreland and just some of my favorite, just some of my favorite music and wrenching on cars, man, the day goes fast and it's, and it's just fun. Like I, I pray before I go in, like, Lord, let me, let me do, let me do good work today and provide a good service for somebody. And it's radically different than making a thousand or 1500 or $2,000 a night playing music. It's much harder, you know. I'm, mm. I'll be 50 in March. My knees hurt a little bit, so it is a, a massive trade-off to go back to making 300 bucks after a hard day's work. But it's just, it's just where we are, and it may not stay this way. And but honestly, I wouldn't care if it did. You know, because well, and I, yeah, go ahead. Well, no, okay, good. 
I, I was just going to say, I, I just remember sitting down with you and your wife and Amanda and talking a little bit. And I just remember her saying something that I think is so hopefully encouraging to you. And, and it spoke a lot to me. She just said, she just said, you know, PW just always figures it out. He always makes it work. And, and what I heard her say was he's, he's all like, you're, you're always providing, you're always being dependable. She can always count on you. Dude, that that's huge. I think just as a man, uh, as a husband. Yeah. Mass will be affirming to have a wife that doesn't panic because she knows that you are going to go figure it out. Like, you know, we always talk about, you know, don't sit on your ass, go, go get a job at Starbucks or McDonald's and, and not, you know, mm -hmm. and, and I, I can't say that I would go do those things, but I would figure it out. I'd find something that was in my skill set and that kept my hourly rate high enough to give me margin to do, um, mm -hmm. to do stuff like this, yeah. right. To explore other avenues. I'm taking my insurance test right now. Um, you know, so I can get licensed as a life and health insurance broker. I don't, I don't necessarily care, um, you know, to be a financial advisor and to continue taking the rest of the test, but it's, it's allowing me to sit in on meetings and, um, with some of our friends and, and partner them with our fiduciaries that we trust. Yeah. And, you know, so, so there's, it, it's not just wrenching on cars. Like we're, I'm not going to do 40 hours a week of wrenching. Mm -hmm. It's, but it is something that if it does present itself, my goal would be to build this up, to move it out of my shop into a different business, to scale it, and then to hire real mechanics and real technicians to run it. You know, mm -hmm. so, so somebody else who really is good at this and really does have a passion for this, um, can have their, you know, a, a part in a business that I think does produce, it is blue collar. It does put your feet on the ground and gets your hands in the game. You leave work with, with dirt under your fingernails. You've, you've had a good day. And to Dude, go back to something yeah, that you, you talked about, like my mind was spinning after listening to Jerry and in this, this idea of the gal lands and the enterprising people and, um, you know, we had talked about buyers and sellers and speculators and, and our, our list had kind of lived there. There's other, there's other qualifying, um, titles that, that keep jumping back into the narrative. And, you know, you, you've talked about producers for yeah. a long time, you know, and, and any one of those buyers and sellers, and sometimes even speculators could be producers, but, but when he said the word Galilean and kind of unpack that, and as you've unpacked that for me, it goes back to that idea that God is really calling us to produce in the bad seasons and in the good seasons. Um, yep. And, yep. and we really want to, even in this podcast, but just as people and as friends, we want to lead people away from the abdication piece. Right? Yeah, I, exactly. Yeah. Cause that, that man, that is where I know I used to be. Um, and yeah, we talked about this in earlier podcasts as well, but I, I used to be the set it and forget it guy. I used to be the, you know, um, get the mutual fund and just every month kind of put the money in. And, and my hope or, or was that I was working 
to earn an income that would then that would then go into this this fund that would grow over time so that I could then eventually set myself aside and become a pure consumer. And it was a very passive process for me, very passive. And so I did not have skin in the game. And, and it's interesting because honestly, if, if I'm just being honest, I think the, the sinful part of me wanted, w- would prefer the, to be the aristocrat, <laughs> you know, I oh, prefer, yeah. I prefer to be the one sitting on the throne or, yes. or in that position and just having the, the income, just feeding my lifestyle. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I was you're, you're not alone. You are not alone. Like money does great things for egos. Yeah. Right. Definitely. I, I, man, there, there's so many days where I'm like, man, if I could just build this thing to this certain level and the money would come in and, but I mean, l- l- my daydream turns into 20 minutes of thinking about me and how great people would think I am <laughs> for building this thing. And I'm like, oh totally. Gosh, like it's, I just wasted 20 minutes of my day. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and and you're so not, you're not alone. Yeah. And it's, it's not easy to be the, the weight bearing, um, pillar, you know, that, that we were describing before, like you're, you're yeah. doing that right now for your family. And, uh, and I think in some ways, even for the community is, as you're providing a, a a service and a lot of value, but there is that mental shift from becoming, you know, go, like you mentioned, be, being going from a consumer mentality to being, to saying, I want to start bearing that weight. Yeah. And, and I want to accept responsibility and provide value for others and create like it. it yeah. It's a whole different way of thinking. Yeah. And, I, and it may even be two different stages because what we're asking people is to for you to become the quarterback of your, your financial future is, is to, is to not abdicate, right. To not be the abdicator. You, you must, you have to use a a financial advisor. They, they sell you the products that, that allow you to take care of um, certain protection pieces and safety pieces, but they're, they're not not the ones that should be uh, directing your finances. Producing is something different. Hmm. it's a it's a totally yeah. different level um you know it if you are counting on the market to produce value for you that falls into the abdication kind of category you know once you kind of take take the lead you know on your on your finances well th- then the question is are you going to build margin into your life to then go produce something hmm. not everybody can you know, we, we have great friends that are, they produce value through their day job, right? They're, they're right. both educators. And so they're, they're pouring their hearts and their time into doing, uh, you know, their 40 or 50 hour week. Um, they are going through the process to, um, to become better stewards of their money. They're, they're putting in the protection pieces, the, uh, the savings pieces, the life insurance, wills, trust, insurances, all this, they're, they're doing all of those types of things. But then to, you know, to move into, into a space of creating margin to, to produce additionally is different. And, and not everybody is, is, that's not everybody's story. And so don't feel guilty if you can't start a side hustle. That's a great point. Cause we, I know what we're, the message we're not trying to send is, what you're doing in your day job is, is not adding value necessarily. We're not saying that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, 
and I push so hard on side hustles because that's what I'm good at and it's what I teach um, that I think that the, that message gets lost of that production can take uh, many different mm-hmm. forms. Yes. Yep. So going back to the, to Jerry Boyer and, and the interview real quick, one of the things that I found really helpful was some of the research that he did with regard to what was going on economically during that time, um, which was actually very similar in some respects to, to where we are today. And it gives some context to some other passages of, of scripture. And I, and I know, I'm sorry, I know for those of you who aren't, <laughs> who um, might not be Christians or read the Bible, or, you know, I know I'm getting deep in, into some scripture here, so bear with me. But um, just the, the idea that he, he mentions in the book, for example, that the production of, of currency was centralized in the city of Tyre during this time, and that's T-Y-R-E, and that there was, without a doubt, deficit spending and, and the debasement of the currency happening as well, which would ultimately really hurt Rome. And, but what's so interesting too, is that the, the aristocrats, those who are the religiously political, politically elite uh, in Israel, in Jerusalem specifically, were actually kind of hoarding this, this gold and and silver in a, a storehouse. And this is so ironic to me, but in a storehouse located underneath the temple in Jerusalem, (laughs) I mean, it's just, I mean, that is in my mind about as sacrilegious as you can get because yeah. that is okay. so exactly the opposite of what God said to do uh, with that. Yeah. Can you, um, can you explain like this, the idea of centralizing and decentralizing? Cause those words are, they can be just a little bit vague. Yeah. So centralizing. So typically People don't realize this, but money can be and has been produced in a decentralized way, which means, you know, you, for example, what, what would often happen is you might create your own currency uh, for, for your shop, PW, that you, that you would um, allow people to, to, to use or you give change back in your currency. And, and that actually would, would happen like there, the, people would create their currency. And then typically what would happen though, is of of course the currency that, uh, that was of the best value, the best quality would be the currency that would survive long-term. Not everybody would recognize the other stuff. Right. Right. And, and yeah, some people would gain a reputation, you know, as to whether their currency was, was pure or not and good or not, but yeah, it was completely decentralized at various points in history. Um, but of course, governments have always come in, in, you know, throughout all of history and in different points in time and centralized the creation of currency, monopolized it and said, we're going to create the money. You stop creating it because, you know, according to us, the government, we, we're, we're benevolent and, and we're, we have your best interest in, at heart. So we're going to do it so that it remains standardized but it never stays that way. <laughs> right. Well, and the, the standardization is not the issue. It's what happens right after that. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Yeah. 
so eventually what happens is what's called deficit spending. They spend um, more than they take in, basically. And, and who holds them accountable more... for that? That's a great question. <laughs> I mean, well, we don't, we the... don't get to. Yeah. Uh, right? Well, there's a ledger. It's called debt. And we have creditors yes. that hold the debt, but the government, for whatever reason, gets to spend money. And it's and and don't kid yourself. Republicans and Democrats alike are doing this. It's not just one yes. or the other. Um, yeah. But nobody calls Ultimately, them on their debts. Right until until there's a until there's a revolt, <laughs> until the the people take up arms and decide to. Uh, which happens in in countries all over the world. It it yeah. happens. But um, do you, realistically, like it won't happen in the U.S. The people are not strong enough to beat the state, even in the South. I mean, our guns. I go to the gun store. It's about you know fifteen minutes away, and their Instagram is hilarious right now because they're all their pictures are of uh, ARs and bullpups and like just really high high end deadly weapons. And pallets and pallets and pallets of ammo. So while the South is arming, I still don't think that we could beat the state. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't know I hear what kind you. of revolt that they're planning. I think um, I don't think it could happen. The revolt yeah. would have to be some other take on some other shape. Maybe common sense. Maybe common <laughs> sense. Maybe the Holy Spirit would 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 reign over people with common sense and then and we would we figure out a different system i don't know that we would go to war with our government man that's a that's a yeah that's a that's a road i'm not going to go down i'm not yeah. even <laughs> well, approach let's, the subject. let's just assume let's assume the war doesn't happen what happens next the the currency ends up becoming worthless because of yeah. so much deficit spending and they produce so much of it, which is happening. I just heard this the other day. So this year, the, the deficit is going to be approaching or around $5 trillion. And just to put that in this, into perspective, um, that is, gosh, that is about as much currency as was created from the, from 1776 until I think it was around the year 2000 was somewhere around. So then in one year, we created as much currency as was created 220 years, the first 220 years of our country, basically. That's astounding. Yeah. Mind blowing. And yeah. Here, here's my struggle. And, 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 and I'm not struggling with your argument. I'm struggling with with the idea that it's ever going to change because we've all just joined into the cheating. You know, one of the one of Jerry's points was that economics is all something we take part in. Yeah, but, but we've point. just we've allowed certain people to kind of dictate how it's going to be, and then they spin the narrative, they sell it to us, so it's palatable. But we're all taking part in it. Um, Definitely. The thing that I'm so curious about is. Um, you know, if they debase the currency enough, the problem is we're the big brother to everybody in the world. Every, every economy is based on ours. Yeah. For now, 
for now. For now. And so, so yeah. a couple yeah. major things would have to happen. Somebody else would have to step in and say our currency is more reliable. People would have to not um, recognize the dollar as the backing currency, which you know, try dealing with the U.S. as your older. Yeah, you know, I, I think of I think of uh, Back to the Future and Biff. Oh yeah, that's if you were <laughs> yeah. to personify a country, it would be yeah. that's the United States, like in <laughs> currency. You just like to beat the crap out of people. Oh, you don't like it? Well, you can you can come get your money, you know, and good luck. Um, I, I just that's think great. I don't think I don't think people are willing to to f with us, you know, like in that regard. But here's the which we we can never figure that part out. Here's the narrative that's more helpful for a believer: is are we really honoring God with the narrative that we're creating? And and if we aren't, what narrative are we going to create and live by? Yeah. And so that's where I yeah, think man. that's where I think Jerry's book is a must read. I think we have to go yep, back yep. to God's narrative and ask Him, like, hey, what honors you? And that is walking inside the lines that's living under the umbrella of his protection. And so if and when it hits the fan and, and God says, okay, I'm going to intervene and take all these things to the ground, the people that are going to still be standing are the people that he's holding up, the load bearing structures, right? Amen. Amen. And, and it won't, and, and it'll be God who's, who's yeah. doing, I love how you said that, like, and, and he will yeah, he will protect and provide for and allow for us to be like we say over and over and over again, that redemptive influence through, through, uh, through commerce. Yeah. Amen. Our, you mentioned the aristocracy. I'm a, I'm a big fan of, um, Andrew Carnegie's Carnegie's writing. Yeah. Person. I don't, I don't think I would have liked him. Hmm. Um, yeah. But I, my introduction to capitalism was reading his journals and, mm. and, and some books that were compilations of his journals. Um, one of the gross pieces of it is that he really believed that certain people were created to rule and some ruled with benevolence. But regardless, if you are a ruling class, you, there's some arrogance wrapped up in it because of the spoils Definitely. that you get to you get to take part in the spoils, right? And you can't, you can't subtract the arrogance from the writing. It's just in there. It's in everything. Like even some of his peers that have written books, like the arrogance is there. We control money because we have experience with it. We got here first. And so we are going to show you how it's done. And because of our goodness, the communities will flourish. Yeah. And, you know, That's and so, crazy. yeah. And now, and this is a political statement for me, it's, it's, it's not left and right or blue and red. It's us and the state. Mm. And so they both take part in it. And I mean, the Republicans and Democrats both take part in this idea that they know better and they can, um, they're both centralizing. They're both part of the shell game that centralizes money and, and, and is debasing the currency. You are working for your dollar and they're going to turn it into 50, 40, 30 cents just by, yeah. by literally creating more paper. Yeah. And, and they will, they will justify it and they will of course, you know, say it is for our good. 
And um, and, and it's funny, I was listening to, or I was watching a, a Netflix movie and I can't remember the, the name of it right now. And I'll try to remember and put it in the show notes, but there's a guy that they talk about on there. Well, he, he shares, he did a study with, with a monopoly game and he brought people in uh, a few hundred people to play monopoly. And he intentionally by the flip of a coin gave one person way more advantage than the other person. Okay. So it was a one-on-one game and the one person got twice as much money, got to roll the dice twice as much, Oh my you know, a bunch of different things that, that totally that played in their, in their favor. And he said, as, as they watch, and you see this in the video, the, the change in the people who were given the advantage it was unbelievable. They, they became very arrogant. They, mm. um, he talked about the fact that they slapped their piece on the board as they moved their piece around the board. They would say uh, things that, you know, discouraging things to, to the person they were playing against, you know, um, and his, his whole, his whole, um, you know, uh, conclusion from the experiment was that whether we think, whether we actually deserve it or not, when we, when we have certain amounts of money and wealth and advantage, we will begin to uh, believe we deserve it. There will be entitlement that plays into it eventually. And, and it was a surprise, you know, to, to many people, the, you know, that study, but to me, I'm like, of course not. That's our sin nature. Like yeah. <laughs> we want to be the big cheese. We want to be God ultimately. Yeah. It, it's sadly the reason that I love playing Monopoly. Like <laughs> if, if I lose, I, I want, it's a game. I just want to start another game. Um, yeah. But I want to get to that place because it's a feeling. There's a feeling associated with it. Like this is, this is how sick I was as a kid. Like I used to play Monopoly with my best friend on a poker table and we would get into fist fights. Like we sometimes the table would get thrown <laughs> because what would end wow. up happening? What end up happening is one of them, one of us would just we get full of ourselves, and as soon as you know our our counterpart would land on the greens and the blues, and we had hotels. I mean, we just were merciless, <laughs> and uh, yeah. and it would it would start the trash talking, and the trash talking would turn into at some point somebody throwing the table and then throwing blows and. And once we were tired enough, we'd set the table back up and we start over again. Right after we watched the Karate Kid, that's that was our Friday night middle school um, activity. I'm I'm sharing way too much right now. Yeah, so many people right now are are feeling very nostalgic. Seriously, <laughs> you are listening it's right now. A medium Domino's pizza, watching the Karate Kid, and then um, and then because we thought we were like, you know, businessmen in the making, we would start playing monopoly and we play we didn't have uh settlers of Catan. we didn't have any of that stuff like we had monopoly yeah. growing up or poker but you know two-man poker sucks so that's um, great that's great it was sick though it really did bring out the worst in us isn't it, it crazy it yeah. does and it's funny because it doesn't have to like one of the points that i thought jerry made that was you know is that um making money is good and producing value is good and that that um, theology and entrepreneurism actually go together. People's belief in God and the belief in production are 100% aligned. I'd never yes. heard of anybody explain it like that. 
Yeah. Yeah. Especially definitely. with his background as being an atheist or, you know, I think it was atheist, not agnostic, but yeah. Yeah, uh, no, that's right. And he, you know, and him saying, and this is not a, you know, a slam against socialism, but the, you know, the idea that atheism and socialism historically have gone together. Um, mm -hmm. But there are massive ties between, you know, capitalism and, and theism. Yep. And yep. if I had to describe myself, you know, I'm, I'm a social capitalist. The only reason I think making money is good is so that we can do great things with it. Yep. You know, for others. For others. Yeah. I think we have to remember from, again, a Christian biblical perspective, God is, is the ultimate owner, the ultimate pillar, the ultimate entrepreneur, the ultimate investor. God, think about what he's given us, blessed us with. There's nothing we can create that doesn't come from the raw materials that God provided for us. Mm. And so as we seek to create, we utilize and, and we acknowledge his ownership of it. And we take it and, and we, and we produce fruit, we become fruitful. Yeah. And hopefully that benefits others. And, and it reflects who God is when we do that. So yeah, man, you're, yeah, you and, yeah. and others who are listening, who, who are going about this and, and getting their hands dirty and, and you are reflecting God's character. Amen. And, and I think it requires, and I, I don't know that Jerry used these words, but it requires some level of sophistication. You know, like when I think when I say blue collar, like growing up when, I, when people would say blue collar, it, it actually meant like almost janitorial. Yeah. Like there was some connotation to it. And the blue collar work that we're talking about and what Jerry wrote about is, um, and I think the word he used was a mediatorial class. Yeah, that's right. right. So, I so, about that. so Jesus is representing a mediatorial class of people that could speak to the aristocracy and, um, you know, to the working class. That, that Jesus was that media. That he was that. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, but if he is our example, then we need to be in the same place. Like you can't survive markets without, um, because you're, you're going to end up producing and, and having somebody take your production and take advantage of it. Like you have to understand the rules of the game, which means that you need to be educated in commerce. You need to be educated in buyers and sellers and speculators and cheaters. You need to understand. I mean, go back and 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 look at the listen to the podcast on the meta narratives um, of finance. Like, you have to be able to speak the language and do the work. And that's not just to be successful, but that is that's literally what Jesus. That's who he is. I asked. I asked Jerry. I said, "What's the main shift?" What's the main shift that you're asking for us? And he's like, well, and I'm going to butcher this, but he said something to the effect of, I want people to know that Jesus wasn't just a carpenter, but a sophisticated person that, you know, that understood his craft, but understood different languages and understood finance and could speak to bankers, but could speak to laymen. Definitely. You yep. know, so, when, you know, so I don't know if that's a great point to bring out, but it's just been resonating with me that, you know, I use the term versatilist. Like we have to, we have to know the different pieces of what makes the game work right. Yeah. It just changes the way in, in 
yeah, for me, at least it changes, it adds more and broadens the perspective and understanding of who Jesus was. Yeah. Especially as it relates to investing in entrepreneurship. Yeah. His, his last comment, well, I don't know if his last comment, but the last note that I wrote was that he, he didn't think that people really understood that entrepreneurism is about, is about loving people, that there is, there was a degree of love and investment, you know, and faith. Um, and, and I wrote, I wrote this down that there's a high degree of trust, um, and love in producing value with a customer in mind. You yeah, know, my, that was my well said. the best word that I, that, um, I mean, it's the word that has changed my life is the word consider. The more time that I would consider these things, you know, that scripture tells us to meditate on, on these things. Mm-hmm. When I work with clients, like that's the word that, you know, when I'm giving them an exercise to sit down for an hour and I don't say meditate because a lot of them are not familiar with that word. Um, yeah. I say consider, like sit down and consider the things that have happened in the last week and the things that are important to you and the values and the, the different moving parts. And pretty soon you'll know what's important and what's not. And the things that are important are the ones that, um, that are, are there because they mean something to you. And I love, I love that he, he used the word love. I wasn't expecting it. It kind of caught me off guard. Um, you know, because we're talking about economics, but he said, if you want to, you know, if, if you want to, uh, understand entrepreneurs. He didn't say it this way, but it, that's his, how I took it. These are people that that are really have a customer in mind, are producing value for them, but really love them and love the people that are working for them to produce that value. Friends, thank you for listening in. You have been listening to Blue Collar Money with P.W. Gopal and Mike Hatch. If you would like to reach out to P.W. directly, you can reach him through his website at pwgopal.com. Or you can reach out to Mike Hatch at empoweredmanhood.com. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any upcoming contents. Thank you again for listening, and we look forward to connecting with you soon.